You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. And this morning, our text will be found in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, we do have some hardback black ones. They are kind of scattered throughout the sea pockets in front of you. You can grab one of those. We'll be on page 1015 towards the back of your Bible in those Bibles. Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, as always, we encourage you, please keep that one. Enjoy it, love it, memorize it. Uh, it is yours. And then if you do have one, you can just return it after we are finished today. So uh, once again, that's First Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And if you're able to this morning, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, uh, we're going to read together. We do have a little bit of a longer passage, so uh, bear with me. But uh, let's read together. So once again, First Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear for them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all, your bright and shining faces. Uh, my name is Court, and I'm one of the pastors here at Providence. I was able to, to preach a couple weeks ago, so <clears throat> most of you know kind of a little update of, of our family. Uh, but I just wanted to say, uh, last time I stood up here, uh, Morgan and I were kind of still at the finish line, but not done with our adoption process. By the grace of God, Morgan is now home with our daughter. And so she's home, and um, we're, so, we're so grateful. You guys prayed with us and believed with us. And we just wanted to say thank you to all of you who did so because the Lord answered our prayers. And uh, truly it was a miracle that now she's home. It's, re- it's been a real delight. So we're glad. Hopefully you guys will get to meet her in the, in the coming weeks uh, whenever they are able to come to church with us. So right now we're just trying to acclimate her to the United States and, you know, Halloween doesn't help. So anyway, we'll continue. Uh, this morning we're, we're continuing our sermon series through First Peter, um, and and I haven't actually been here with you uh, present physically, but I've been kind of keeping up as as we've walked through it this fall. 
And one of the reasons that we decided to do First Peter in the first place was that uh, last year around this time, you know, every year we start to begin to plan the following year's sermon calendar. And, and then we want to plan out uh, as best as we can by the Spirit's power what's, what's going to be helpful for our church in the coming year. And we're flexible with that if we feel like we need to change some things. We typically do if it's necessary. Uh, but First Peter was one that we kind of saw way out ahead. We said, hey, you know, it's going to be an election year. Turns out election years are always crazy, but they seem to be getting more and more crazy. First Peter is a great book to walk through because it addresses a lot of these themes that might be coming up around that time. Now, having said that, we did not know 2020 would look like this, as I'm sure you didn't either. You know, we didn't kind of like, I don't have the prophetic gift to know that there was going to be a worldwide pandemic or, you know, a lot of things that ended up happening. But nonetheless... Uh, we, we had the, the foresight to think, how important is it for the church to know that ultimately, more than any, any other allegiance they might give, the church is meant to give allegiance to Jesus Christ, and that Jesus is building a spiritual house in the midst of an unspiritual land. That spiritual house is his church, the body of Christ, and that therefore there's always going to be an element of exile and pilgrim and sojourner in the Christian identity because we know we're not home yet. And so the tendency of the human heart is to try to, you know, make a home and find a home. And although many of you do have homes, most of you have it in their apartment or a condominium or a house or whatever. And, you know, what you do is try to make that thing homey. And that's totally fine. That spiritually speaking, we're always going to feel like we're not home yet because we're not. And so rather than us just trying to, trying to buy into the narrative that if everything was just right in whatever nation or political climate or do you fill in the blank economy, then we could be home. The Christian has to be reminded that's not true. It's never going to be too true for us until King Jesus comes and returns. Then and only then will we finally be taken home. So we got these kind of, uh, like Abraham, our patriarch, we have our eyes set on this celestial city is what John Bunyan called it. Like the city that has foundations, the new Jerusalem that's coming, this kingdom of God coming to earth as it already is in heaven. And so first Peter's all about that. How do we live in the tension of the fact that we already are citizens of the kingdom of God? And yet what not yet has come is really important, namely the very presence of that kingdom on earth. And there's a lot of implications to that. And so that's kind of what we've been doing. And naturally what you can expect with a book like first Peter is that because we are pilgrims on the earth and sojourners and exiles, spiritually speaking, and at times, even physically, we become that because of our spiritual proclivities. What that means is that there has to be a major theme of suffering in the book of first Peter. Have you guys caught that? It's like every other week we're talking about hardship, you know? Well, why? Because naturally, if we are spiritual uh, exiles in a world that's unspiritual, we're going to feel the pangs of that, the pangs of cultural exile, because ultimately, as we pursue Christ-likeness and a culture is going exact, exactly opposite of that, you're going to feel the tension of swimming upstream. You ever, you ever uh, floated down the Guadalupe and you're in the tube and then you like lose your flip-flop and try to go back and get it? It's not easy. And actually where the rapids are more fierce, it's, it's much more difficult. It's impossible where the rapids are extremely severe. And I would say we are in a cultural time where the rapids have never been as severe as they are right now. And we are trying uh, with every uh, thing that the spirit works powerfully within us to basically swim upstream. And that's tough. And so that's really what first Peter is about. And it has everything to do with hardship, which we'll get into a little bit this morning. But there's really two major themes. I'll give you the heads up on where, where we're going, and then we'll pray. One of the major themes is suffering and hardship. But before that, Peter's going to talk about Christian virtue. 
He's going to talk about the importance of how we live our Christian lives in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Now, you guys have already kind of gone through that. Eric did a phenomenal job last week of talking through the husbands and wives text and talking about character and marriage. And before that, it talked about uh, like individual servants or, uh, you know, those who are under authority and kind of Peter going through what the character traits are. Today, he's going to kind of sum up all Christians. He's going to say, all of you, we ought to act in this way and have these Christian virtues. And then he's going to take the turn and say, what happens when those Christian virtues hit the crucible of suffering? How do we act? So before we hop in, what I'd like to do is two things. Number one, pray and ask the spirit to help us that the word might illuminate our hearts, change us, uh, tug on us in areas we need to be tugged on, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. And then secondarily, I feel I feel obligated in the best possible way. Uh, the book of 1 Timothy actually tells us that we ought to pray uh, for all authorities in high places and just to pray for our nation. Just overarchingly, God, may your will be done and ask the Lord for help in a way that only he can help for our country this week. Amen? So if you'll bow your heads, I'll lead us. Father, first, we just want to say we're so grateful for your word. Timeless and true. We don't have to look anywhere else but we can look to your word and know that what you have said endures forever. Where the grass fades and the flower fails, the word of the Lord remains forever. So thank you, God, that you've given us your word. And we ask now, Holy Spirit, would you, as we read the word and try to understand it and apply it, Holy Spirit, would you do uniquely what only you can do, which is to speak directly to our hearts in all of our individual circumstances and situations and families and help us now to apply your word in a way that is both beneficial and helpful to us and glorifying most of all to you. And then lastly, Lord, we do lift up our nation to you. As your word has commanded us to do, we lift up every official in high places that you would infiltrate their minds and hearts, that they might lead in a way and in a manner that pleases you. And also, my God, that as we go through this election, that you would quell and hold at bay the enemy's great schemes of division. And that, Lord, by your matchless grace, you would give us not what we deserve, but your mercy on our land. We repent as your church where we have fallen short of your glory. And we ask, my God, now would you heal our land that we live in and may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We look forward to the day, Jesus, when we see you face to face. We long for it. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And until then, we submit ourselves to you, God. May we be a city on a hill. May we be a light into the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's start. Let's kick off here. Let's start in verse 8. We've got a lot to get through. Peter says this, finally, all of you have unity of mind. Just to mention here, this all of you is to make sure that you don't think he's just talking to wives, he's just talking to husbands, he's just talking to servants. He's, He's coming back to say, all of the church, all Christians, this is for all of you. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So at Providence, when we go through our membership class, or at least we used to do this, and I'm not sure if it's still involved with our curriculum, but we kind of talk about how does discipleship work at Providence, 
And we use this paradigm, which is not unique to us. It's, it's used, I think, uh, across many churches. It's a paradigm called head, hard, hands. And it's a way of trying to explain what spiritual maturity looks like or growth and discipleship. And it's this idea that really spiritual maturity and sanctification is growing in your Christ-likeness that we start to look more and more like Jesus after our conversion and our submission to the spirit. No one just immediately is saved and right there in the baptismal tank, they come out and immediately they're just floating on a cloud, you know, just spitting out amazing prophecies and none of that happens. In fact, if you're a Christian, you know that when that happened, although it was an amazing time and you knew something had changed in you, there were all these, this baggage that came along with that. You still had similar uh, proclivities in your heart to do things you wish you didn't do. Like you didn't all of a sudden uh, stop wanting to uh, look at things you shouldn't look at or say things that you shouldn't, shouldn't say. And you didn't immediately, you know, go into your marriage after that baptism and then, you know, only say encouraging things to your spouse. Your kids would do things that are, you know, I'm trying to be euphemistic, but silly. And you didn't just say, my child, I forgive you for you know not what you do, you know. You had angry moments. You had lustful moments. You had... Uh, malicious moments, maybe even you had strife in your family, even after you're Christian. And so the idea of spiritual maturity is not that that's completely absent, but that there's a trajectory that isn't a completely linear line upwards, but it looks more like I use the analogy of Frodo and Sam on their way up Mount Doom. You know, it's just very difficult. You're barefoot climbing up rocky crags. You feel like you're getting way further away when you're not, when you're actually getting closer and it's a difficult process, but nonetheless, you're on this kind of line towards Christ likeness. And we use the head, heart, hands paradigm to define, well, what does Christ-likeness look like? Now, this is imperfect, guys, but I think it might help us to frame what Peter's saying here. One is like, think of it like the head paradigm is that we think like Jesus thought. Theologically, the ideas that Jesus had in his head about humanity, about people, about God, we think like Jesus thought. This is things like our, our theological study, uh, our teaching. We want, to, we want to mirror Jesus in this way. The heart paradigm is the affections of Jesus. We want them, our affections to be united or Christ-like. Our devotion is like Jesus. Our worship is like Jesus. Our relationships one to another look like Jesus' relationships to his disciples or to other people in the gospels. We want to love like Jesus, right? We want to have that, that tender heartedness Peter's talking about here. And then lastly, the hands paradigm is we want our actions to be united with Jesus. We actually want our lives to look like Jesus's behaviors. So this is Christian virtue. This is things like evangelism. This is things like mercy. We want to look like Jesus looked in the way he acted. So the Good Samaritan parable doesn't, isn't just a good story that you tell your kids. It's one you enact when you actually meet up with a situation that looks kind of like that. Does that make sense? And that as we have this head, heart, hands paradigm, and we look at Jesus' life, head, heart, hands, which is perfection, and then we look at our lives and we see our brokenness, we repent of sin and we put faith in Jesus that we might look more and more like him, even though we know it's imperfect, we're going to pursue Christ-likeness in the way we live our lives. Okay, so that's one way to look at it. It's, it's what we try to help with, with our people at Providence. Now, it's also a way that we might be able to fit in Peter's admonitions here. Because he gives us some admonitions on Christian character or Christ-likeness. And he can kind of fit them in with this head, heart, hands paradigm. Using head, he says, we should have unity of mind and humility of mind. Now, I have a lot of thoughts on why I think those go together, but we don't have time for them. But one that I think is uh, maybe most prevalent is in order for us to have unity of mind as Christians or like togetherness, we, there is no way to have unity without humility. If you're married, you know this, Right? <laughs> You became one at your marriage, but you know what didn't miraculously happen? You didn't have 
total consensus on everything about life. If that's true, you're probably just married. Just give it time, baby. You will disagree about something. And so how do you have unity of mind in your marriage, even though you don't have uniformity of mind? Humility. Humility. A husband or a wife has to accept the fact that even though we might disagree, we're going to have unity around main things, major things that actually are life-shaping things. You know, we do this in premarital class. We'll ask the couple, you know, do you guys have the same purpose, dreams, and desires about your marriage? And they always say, well, what do you mean? We want to be married. I'm like, well, that's a good start. But what about life? What do you think about life? What do you think about kids? What do you think about? And that's whenever premarital usually starts to, you know, turn into a little bit more of a rigorous conversation. But you can't have unity without humility. And Peter says here, with the head paradigm, Christians ought to have both. We ought to seek unity of mind that we think, although we don't have uniformity, we don't all think exactly the same. We think the same about the main things, namely who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, who we are, and what Christ calls us to do. And then in order for us to maintain unity, even around the things we disagree on, we have humility of mind. It's where we don't always think that in our rational minds that we see everything perfectly, but we acknowledge that we too are corrupted by sin. And that even though the spirit has cleansed us, that we too can fall into disarray in our thoughts. So we have humility. The heart paradigm, Peter says, be sympathetic, have brotherly love, have a tender heart. These are feelings like Jesus, right? Sympathy is like Jesus puts himself into the shoes of those whom he's ministering to and has sympathy on them. He has mercy on them. He has compassion on them. Jesus treats his disciples like friends, even though he's the Lord. And then, of course, the one that really strikes me here is tenderheartedness because tenderheartedness cuts both ways. It's like, yes, you want your wife to be tenderhearted. And so maybe it's good for all of us to be tenderhearted, except that tenderheartedness also means that you're vulnerable to hurt. Like if you keep a tender heart, it means that you're open and openness means that people that actually want to harm you can do so. And if you're a tenderhearted person, you know this. And what happens to tenderhearted people that get hurt over and over again? If you're not careful, if you don't have healing, then it's just like any other wound, you start to become callous. And if you get hurt over and over and over again, but you never allow the gospel to heal that wound, then maybe you start to be more callous than you ever thought you could be. And so then this is how Christian churches, they can sometimes begin to argue about things like paint color. And it's not because they really care about paint color. It's because 15 years ago, they started to begin to be hurt by one another and never apply the gospel. And so now paint color represents this big, massive baggage about the arguments that have never really been settled by the gospel. And it's not even the arguments that matter. It's really the heart. And so Peter says, stay tenderhearted. Why do you stay tenderhearted? You have to immediately address the wound with the bomb of the gospel or callous's form. And then lastly, hands. So he says what? Like don't repay evil for evil or don't go tit for tat, right? Don't go uh, tooth for tooth, uh, eye for an eye. He's saying here that we ought to guard our words. Like don't take revenge. Don't be works based. Instead of cursing people, bless them. Instead of uh, pursuing violence whenever you've been wronged, pursue peace. Instead of speaking deceit, we should speak truths to one another. You know, these are all massive behaviors that are like Jesus. And, and listen, guys, like we can all agree with this, but can we also agree they're not easy? Like these just aren't, first of all, they're not natural things. It's not like your kids woke up this morning and they had all of these already down. Like most of your kids, and I'll just say my kids too, like they're really good at all the bad sides. It's like nobody had to teach them. They're just good liars. It's like, who taught you to lie? And I guess I could look at myself and say, do I lie like that? But the truth is, like, they just knew deceit gets me out of some things. And so if we're honest, like, we know that these things are good things and Christian virtue is a good thing, but nonetheless, it's a difficult thing. Now, I want to hone in on what Peter does here because I think it's important for the church because he says something that some of us are uncomfortable with, but it's very biblical. He says, we ought to do all of these things. Why? Because to this you were called... 
so that you would obtain a blessing. Well, wait just a minute. You and I are Protestant Christians. We don't believe at all that we should be able to claim any sort of reward for our behaviors because our behaviors, most of you know, especially if you have, you know, theological background, your, your good works are like filthy rags to God. They're nothing good, right? We don't, nothing can good could come out of our hearts and our hands. You know, Romans says it like this. There are none that are good. No, not one that like the venom of asps is under our lips. We just behave like sinners. And so we have to ask ourselves like, what's What's actually going on here? Because it seems to me like Peter's saying that we should pursue Christian virtue to obtain a blessing, that something good comes from this. And here's what I want to say to you. I feel like we have abandoned the idea that Christian virtue leads to blessing because we're afraid that what we're saying is Christian virtue leads to salvation. Those aren't the same things. We're not saved on the basis of our works, but don't kid yourself, friends. Our, Our works matter. Our Christian virtue matters, and there's a result from our behaviors. There's a result from the way we love. There's a result from the way that we speak. You should teach your kids the way they behave, head, heart, hands, absolutely matters, and there's consequences to it, good and bad. This does not negate the fact that it's not on the basis of this that we have eternal life in Christ, because if that were the case, we'd all be damned. But because we have Christ, this is regardless of our works. It's on faith. But the Christian virtue uh, idea is essential It's essential because if we don't have the Christian uh, virtue lens through which we look at the way we live our lives, how is it that we can parent our children? How is it that we ever uh, actually make judgments about what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong? Well, the answer, of course, is that we do. We live this way to obtain a blessing, Peter says, or in other words, thinking, feeling, and acting like Jesus carries with it a promised blessing. Namely, verse 10 says this, whoever desires to love life and see good days lives like this. Now, I thought about this. I wrote it in my notes. I said, you know, if I ask you this, this is really rhetorical. Do you want to love your life? Do you want good days? I don't know all of you, but probably you're like, hmm, that seems generally good. I like that, right? Now, here's the thing. If I stop my sermon right now and I just pinned, I just tied it up really neatly and said, so live a good life. We can get out of here. Maybe all of us are like temporarily motivated to do good things. Like, hey, Bible says love life. We get good long days. You know, we can, let's just do good. The problem is the Bible's about to take a turn. <laughs> now, there's two things to this. Number one, I love the Bible because the Bible's honest. This is why you know you can trust the Bible, number two. Not only should you like it, but you should trust the Bible because the Bible doesn't tell you what you want to hear. The Bible always tells you what corresponds with reality. You ever notice that? Like if you were to write a book, for instance, and you were to try to explain the Christian faith or the narrative of the Bible, you probably would, none of us would write what the Bible has to say. You know why? Because if you read the Bible, sometimes it's like confusing. There's stories in there that you're like, what? We're going to get into one in a second here. But also it says things that like you and I don't like. Here's a, for instance, if you're, uh, let's say you're Peter and you're, you're telling Mark what to write in the gospel of Mark. Wouldn't you say, hey, why don't you leave out that part about me, you know, betraying Jesus and like that whole thing at the fire. Let's just, that's an editorial mistake, you know, it's like, you don't want to say that. And yet it's in there. Or if you're Paul and you're writing Romans, it's like, do you really want to say like, there's not one righteous person in the whole world. All of us have basically no hope without God because we all are turned away from God. That's not popular at all. And it's probably not going to get you on the New York Times bestseller list. And yet he says it. And he says it openly and clearly and really doesn't shy away from saying it. In fact, Jesus will say things in the gospels. Like I would encourage you to read John chapter six. Jesus says things over and over that you would never say if you were the son of God that came into the world. And then like people blush at it and they say like, hey, could you clarify? And then he doubles down on it. 
He's like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And they're like, say what? And then Jesus says, yeah, like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll never see eternal life. And they go, surely you don't mean this. And then he says, unless my flesh and my blood, you ingest them, you have no life. John 6 records that like everybody leaves except for like the 12 disciples. There were massive crowds. And Jesus doesn't say, all right, guys, come around. We'll, we'll, we'll work through this together, which is what we've had to do for thousands of years, right? He brings them together and he goes, okay, do you guys want to leave too? Why does the Bible do this stuff? Well, that's what's about to happen, okay? So it starts with saying there's a blessing that comes with virtue, and then there's a turn. Listen to this. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Okay, so he says there's this blessing, and it's coming along with Christian virtue. But have you ever wondered in your Bible, like whenever it'll do things like you have like a regular text and then it kind of like, it hones in and indents like that? You guys, you know what I'm talking about? Like if you just look at the way in which this is formatted, the sentences are going across the, the page and then it indents and it almost looks like they're quoting something. That's because they are. He's quoting another part of the Bible. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's saying, as it's written in Psalm 34, he's referencing this to make his point about Christian virtue leading to Christian blessing. But the verse that he decides to quote is one of the most morally ambiguous stories in maybe the Bible. Some of you probably don't even know it. Psalm 34 is written by King David. King David's the most popular king in all of uh, Israel's history. And it's at a time before King David was king, and he is running away from Saul. If you want to read a story about, you know, a guy that's suffering for doing all the right things, David most of the time is that guy, he, especially before he gets to kingship. I mean, he just really has a hard go of it. So he's been running away from Saul. He's been basically well, wandering around in the wilderness. He's been chased to and fro. He's, he's so tired. And then he shows up in front of a tyrannical king named Abimelech. And he's running from Saul, who's on his heels ready to kill him. So he knows he needs to get into this city, but now there's a, a tyrannical king in front of him. And now he has to make a decision. This guy hates me because I'm an Israelite. And he knows that I've actually fought against his, his kingdom. This guy behind me is my fellow Israelite, but he hates me and he wants to kill me. And so he's basically pressed on every side with suffering. And what does David do? The Bible says that he acts like a madman before Abimelech. He acts crazy, spits on his beard and just starts to act mentally ill. <laughs> and the king's like, this is not David, this is a joke. Let this guy go, like we're not gonna kill him. Now I tell you that story because that's when David wrote Psalm 34. I call it morally ambiguous because is that not deceitful? Was he doing the right thing? <laughs> Listen, that's a whole other sermon for another day. But I say that because suffering sometimes in the face of doing the right thing is so harsh that it actually will drive you nuts. So Peter is both going to say that Christian virtue leads to a good life, and then he's going to say, and sometimes it leads you to the most horrible things you could ever imagine, and it'll drive you absolutely nuts. Listen to verse 13 from Peter. He says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Do you know when I read that what I thought? Lots of people. Genuinely. That's my first reading of that. Like, who's going to harm you if you're doing good stuff? Does anybody else like, uh, it happens to me all the time. Okay. So what is he saying? He's saying, well, number one, we're swimming upstream, yes, but he's also hinting here to common grace. 
what is common grace? Well, common grace is that God has graciously restrained the evil in the world to such an extent that no matter if you believe in God or don't believe in God, God has restrained evil in the world so that it is not as bad as it possibly could be. Because if it was as bad as it possibly could be, we would all be destroyed. So God's common grace is on mankind. And namely, the old, the old timers used to call it natural law. The old timers used to say that everybody who's born into the world generally has this sense of, well, that's not good. Right? And that that's just kind of like intrinsically wired in you. Like you, like you kind of wake up in the morning and your kid knows to be deceitful because they know they did something bad, even if you never taught them that that unique thing was bad. You walking with me on this? So what Peter's saying here is who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? He's saying that, you know, God is so gracious that he's wired the world so that it's a lot harder for people to cause you to suffer if you're zealous for good works. But he doesn't say that it doesn't happen. We have to go to the next verse. So then he says, but, this is a big but, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. In other words, there are exceptions to the rule. This is important. There are tragic exceptions to the rule. In fact, not only does the Bible tell you stories of these tragic exceptions, but if I went through your life, you might even point out to some of your own, right? Where you pursued to do the right thing and got the wrong results. And I think Peter's going to put his finger here on the problem with pursuing Christian virtue in this way, namely that it's really tough to do whenever you suffer for it. Like notice the blessing promise here. It comes like this. It says that you'll even get a blessing whenever you suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. But this is difficult because also in order for you to suffer well, you have to maintain Christian virtue, even as you're under the crucible of hardship. Let me put it another way. Is there anything more difficult to do the right thing in life? Well, maybe one thing, and that is to do the right thing in life when everyone around you is, is bent on doing the wrong thing to you. C.S. Lewis used to say it like this. He would say, you know, you think Christianity is easy until you try to be morally good. And then you're like, what, what's going on? It's not easy. Every time I try to be morally good, I do the wrong things, which is basically what Paul the Apostle says too. But man, I'll tell you, you know what's even harder than trying to do morally good things whenever you're cheered for it? It's trying to do morally good things whenever you're mocked for it, whenever you're treated poorly for it. I mean, that's really the crucible, right? And I think this is key too. And actually, you know, Eric came up to me in between gatherings and pointed this out. And I think it's really key. It's not just that we are being persecuted on the basis of our faith. It's that any suffering that comes to you just because you're trying to live a life that's Christ-like is included in this. It means that the totality of your life when you pursue Jesus is going to be hit headlong with suffering and hardship simply because doing the right thing, doing the good thing is often met with that kind of difficulty because of the culture that you're in. Now, here's what I want to say. What does Peter say about how we should engage with this? Okay. I think maybe the most important thing to note is not what he says explicitly, but something that he says implicitly. In other words, something he doesn't say is really important. And I want to mention it. Take this with a grain of salt. It's just maybe insight into the text. Listen to what he says here at the end of verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile you and your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good than it is, than it, if it should be God's will, than it is for doing evil. Peter doesn't say this, but I think the number one thing 
that we must start with. When you are met with suffering as you pursue Christian virtue or Christian character, is that we would not give in to resentment and bitterness because I think that's the rule, not the exception. Hebrews 12 verse 5 says that we should not allow the root of bitterness to, to take root because it defiles many. Some of you, you might think, you know, court, when I suffer, I get bitter. That doesn't hurt anybody but myself. And I would say, oh, certainly it, hurt, it hurts yourself, but it does not only hurt you. It is impossible for you to compartmentalize a bitter and resentful heart. You cannot do it. Your wife will be affected or your husband, your children will be affected, your coworkers will be affected. And ultimately, if you want to look at some of the deepest atrocities in the 20th century, or maybe even beyond that, you can find that bitterness and resentment actually make their way into that as a, as a major cause of it. Like, here's one thing that I read. My uh, grandmother was German and she came from World War II. She, uh, after World War II, she, she immigrated to the United States. And so I was always really interested in what happened in World War II because, uh, you know, the the Nazis had put everyone in, into concentration camps and you're like, how can a human being do that? And so uh, as weird as I was as a kid, I wanted to read about Hitler. What, why did he do this thing? So I read Mein Kampf. It's a real light reading, you know, <laughs> nighttime reading with your kids. Um, when you read Mein Kampf, I would say one of, I don't know if it's the, but one of the primary motivators for this guy was that he was so bitter and resentful about the outcome of World War I and what it did to the German people that it just stirred in him this motivation to basically start this wave of Nazism. Now, I don't think he was penning this thinking the concentration camps were coming, but neither are we, are we? When you're resentful and bitter, you're not penning things like really harming your marriage, but you know what comes? Later, you harm it. When you're resentful and bitter at outcomes in your, in your job, you don't, you're not pinning that you would be depressed and laying in your bed, you know, until 10 in the morning, 11 in the morning, 12 p.m., 1 p.m., discouraged because of what happened at your job after you got fired because that's what uh, it led to. But nonetheless, this happens. So I think what we have to say is that resentment and bitterness have to be avoided for the Christian. And how do we do that? Well, I think then Peter says this is how we avoid it. So first, what he doesn't say, now what does he say? Let me make mention here that I, I'm not making light of bitterness and resentment because, my goodness, it's very, it's very common. In fact, I think it's not hard to fall into bitterness and resentment when you suffer for all the right reasons, man. So I'm not trying to make light of that if you're in that right now. What I'm saying is note that it is so dangerous that it will not only defile you but many. Okay. So, all right, court, but then what do I do? Well, he says, have no fear of them, them being the people that harm you, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. So first and foremost is that we would have courage. That's the first thing he says. Don't be afraid or anxious in the face of your oppressors, but take courage. This is what C.S. Lewis said about courage. He says, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but is the form of every virtue at its testing point. That's really insightful, is it not? Let me read that again. Courage is not simply one of the virtues. It's the form of every virtue at the testing point. So when, when Peter says that we should take courage in the face of suffering, he's not just telling you like your PE coach, it's telling you, you just got one more lap, you know, and you're like, I can do it. No, courage is so essential because every other virtue hangs upon whether or not you're going to be courageous enough in the face of opposition to hold on to that virtue. If courage fails, so does every other virtue. It's like a domino effect, right? It's like if I, if I lose heart, as the Bible says, do you ever wonder why God and then Christ in the New Testament regularly says, take heart or be of good courage? Because once courage or taking a heart fails, all the dominoes fall. Maybe something to note here would be that Peter or no, no writer of the New Testament or the old says there's a new set of rules for people who suffer. 
It's not like, hey, Christian virtue is really not that important when you go through hardship. This is a very, it's like a new phenomenon for us, right? We think that when we go through hardship, then that means that we have carte blanche. I will say that I do think Christian community, we need to help those who are suffering and we need to have lower expectations as far as, you know, giving them a safe place where maybe they do have some of those difficult moments. But nonetheless, when the Bible speaks to the individual sufferer, it never says, you know what, don't worry about Christian virtue because you're really having a tough time. Just never does it. I wish it did. Remember, I started this by saying the Bible says things we don't want to hear. So don't be mad at me. Just be mad at the Bible. It never does that. It never says, you know, you really had a hard childhood, so you don't really have to worry about the whole, you know, not being deceitful thing. You can just, you have a different mix. You can be deceitful because, you know, your parents were deceitful, and then your parents before them were deceitful, and their parents before them were Nazis. So it's okay. Just be deceitful. It's like, No. In fact, it keeps the same set of rules, and it actually says that it's at that testing point that our character matters the most because that's when a watching world looks in and sees if there's validity to this thing we call the gospel. So he says that we shouldn't be afraid. Then he says, honor Jesus in your heart as holy. That's Christian character. And then he says, prepare yourself to defend the faith that you hold. Clarity. Many of us, we might jump to clarity or defending our faith, but then we haven't done the Christian character piece because we haven't done the courage piece. And therefore we can't follow his next admonition, which is that we should defend the faith with gentleness and respect. If you're not really passionate about being like Jesus, you're probably never going to share your faith with gentleness and respect because we live in a disrespectful, ungentle world. And so you feel like, why in the world would I ever be gentle or respectful of a world that is hostile to Christianity? And your answer to that is because of Christ. But if you just eliminate that altogether and you say, well, I'm never going to be like Jesus, so I don't really have to do that. Well, then you've now given yourself an out that the Bible doesn't give us. We have a responsibility on not just sharing the faith, but how we do it. So let's walk through this linearly. And then I got to close, even though we got so much more. So suffering inspires fear. So what do you do? Suffering inspires fear, meaning, let me just give you a sentence for it. How do I get out of the situation I'm in right now? I hate how it makes me feel. The reason I call that fear is because it's the fight or flight response. It's do I need to fight and put up a fight to whatever's actually coming in and making me suffer? Or do I need to run away? Either way, I got to get out of where I'm in. So when suffering inspires fear, what does that do? Either you're going to capitulate or you're going to take courage. Bible says take courage because that fear and anxiety that's in you can only be combated by the courage that the spirit empowers. If you've ever wondered why, uh, why is courage a big theme, like the take heart or, um, or God saying that we should be of good courage, think of the disciples before the crucifixion and resurrection and then after. The disciples before the crucifixion all run away when Jesus is arrested. Peter and John, they kind of creep behind scenes. You know, they're trying to, Peter's trying to keep his distance. He doesn't want to, then what happens? Well, Peter denies Jesus three times because he's so afraid of actually being crucified with him. But if you go fast forward, post-resurrection, they're in the upper room, the spirit fills them. Christians have a new virtue, this new virtue that's spirit wrought. It's courage. Not only do these men go to the, the elders of Israel who beat them and say, never preach in the name of Jesus again, but they say, we will always obey God. We won't listen to you. And uh, 11 out of the 12 go to martyr's death. The only exception being John who ends up getting sent to an island so he can write a book, a really intense book. It's called Revelation. So the ones who were too scared to even be arrested or questioned before the resurrection, post-resurrection are the most courageous men that ever lived. I say that to say courage is not just a virtue. It is an essential. It, it, it very, I very well may agree with C.S. Lewis. It's at the center. How do we take courage? The good news is this is a spirit wrought virtue. It's not something you can just drum up on your own. Okay. Now I got to close with what I worried about the most in this text, which is some pretty confusing passages. 
<laughs> and I want to say this, we're probably going to do a provcast on some of them because there's no way to get to them. Because I think that the overarching theme of this is actually not these particular passages, but I got to go through them anyway. Let's just read 18 through 22 and we'll be done. You might be thinking, okay, court, this is a real good pep talk about having Christian virtue and suffering, but what about Jesus? Give me some help. Well, here you go. Peter says this, for Christ also suffered. That's the essential, right? How, what, how, what gives us the power, the, the strength? Because we have our empowering example, Christ, who suffered for us once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, all having been subjected to him. So Peter says this, only when we as Christians are wowed by the gospel, can we be appropriately motivated to pursue this kind of Christian virtue in our everyday lives, particularly in the face of unjust suffering. It is not something that you and I can do on our own. We must be absolutely wowed by Christ having done it for us as our forerunner and that he's the one who's with us in the midst of it. You see, Jesus was the only one Every one of us most likely have suffered horizontally unjustly, meaning someone's done something to you that you did not deserve. And sometimes it's even been on the basis of a good thing that you did, but only Jesus has suffered vertically unjustly. I say unjustly loosely because obviously it was the justice of God on the cross because Christ took our sins and he accepted this fully on his, on his shoulders. So it wasn't like he was doing this unwillingly, but nonetheless, only Jesus was, did not deserve the wrath of God did not deserve vertical justice or suffering, and yet he took it upon himself. At the core, the gospel story is about God enduring unjust suffering to forgive and save you and me. Like Jesus suffered, why? To save us. Jesus suffered, why? To cleanse us. Jesus suffered, why? To give us victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. So at the center of our faith, listen to me on this, what we have is a suffering servant who took upon himself something he did not deserve and that God turned this for good. This theme is thousands of years old. It's older than the human body of Jesus, this theme. That's crazy to think about, isn't it? It's not older than Jesus because Jesus is eternal. But before Jesus was born, this theme of a suffering servant being the actual turner of history for good is, is as old as you can ever think. Like here's a, here's a really early one, Joseph. Joseph is thrown into slavery by his brothers, sold into slavery by his brothers. Then he ends up kind of, he gets like a little bump in life because now he's doing a good job as a servant. And then all of a sudden Potiphar's wife lies about him, falsely accuses him of sexual assault. He ends up getting thrown into jail, into prison. He does something good for a guy and the guy's like, don't worry, I'll remember you. Forgets him entirely. He's stuck in prison for years of his life for, for doing nothing wrong. And then, of course, the story goes on that he becomes second only to Pharaoh. There's a great famine in the land. And the Bible records that Joseph recognized at the end of his life that it was for the saving of many lives that he had suffered. That if he had not suffered in this unique way, thousands of people would have died in famine because he would have never even went to Egypt. And many of you have this story, don't you? When you look back at your suffering, you think, if I did not suffer in that unique way, I may have never met this person or this person or this person. And my life may have never turned out this way. And then there was much glory that came from it. Now, I want to say to you this because I think it's important. And some of you are in the middle of your suffering and you hate that I'm even mentioning this because you're like easy for you to say, as you look down at me and I'm in the dungeon and you're looking in saying, don't worry, it'll turn out good. 
You ever felt that way? Maybe just me? Okay. That's difficult. One way to think about this is that when we face suffering with Christ-like courage, it has a way of fortifying us, reinvigorating us with purpose and reinforcing our belief that our lives are more than just a series of unconnected events, but our lives are purposeful, designed by God and meaningful. And that when God is with us, even in the midst of this hardship, your story is a part of this massive story of redemption and glory. That should give you tons of courage. And now finally, what in the world is Peter talking about with Noah and going into the prisons and preaching and how does this have to do with it, right? Okay. Well, like I said, I'm going to try to do a provcast. I mean, I think the spirits in prison thing, there's, there's, it's widely debated, but it, it could mean that he was going to preach to these unbelieving people during Noah's day who refused to trust Noah on the, to, that God was going to bring judgment. It could mean that there's fallen angels that are getting preached. It's widely debated. And I think there's a lot to say about baptism here, but I think there's a way bigger picture and it's this. What is the story of Noah really? Well, in Noah's time, the earth is full of wickedness and God rightly decides to judge the earth. He's gonna bring a flood. Suffering's coming for all of mankind. That's one way to look at it. And then Noah finds favor in the sight of God. You know, it's like, okay, favor, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that God comes to Noah and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build a boat. Now this may sound like, okay, good news. Like, Lots of water, going to build a boat. He's going to save us through the boat. Well, this is you and I bringing like our understanding of a rain, B, boats. You got to think of it like this. This would be like uh, you warning people that a hurricane's coming in the middle of like the desert of Arizona. People are like, okay. But that's even not fair because at least people understand what hurricanes are. This is like Noah's being told that there's going to be such a global catastrophe that has never been seen before. And it's going to happen through also a means through which they have never seen before, which is rain and and then he's got to build this boat in the middle of the Mesopotamian desert. And he doesn't know what a boat is. And it's a mess. And then, and then the next news is that, okay, and you got to save the animals. So there's going to be two by two animals. They're going to show up too. And there's only one door to the boat. It's like, well, that's a bad design, you think, right? It's like, you ever been on a cruise ship? There's tons of gangways. It doesn't mess with the traffic. There's only one door to the ark. It's like, well, why? Don't ask questions. Just build it. And then, of course, we know the story, right? Because the, the floodwaters come. And Peter is saying to us that this is akin to our own baptism. It's a, it's, that this is a, analogous to us. How is it analogous to us? Well, I think one way to look at this is to say that the Christian is inevitably uh, been promised by the scriptures that we will face suffering. The waters of suffering are coming. And, and if you look at it eternally, the waters of judgment are coming on the earth. And there's only one way out, and that way is the ark. And that way is Christ. And there's some beautiful things in the Bible that even give us some insight into this. Um, like, like sometimes we miss it, but, but on the cross, Jesus is being nailed to the cross and, and everybody's looking at him and they're mocking him. And, and we know this Jesus has his arms outstretched and it's, it's the symbolism of Christ continuing to be tenderhearted and open to a world that is completely hostile to him. And as he's about to die, he cries out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This, this, this massive openness that Christ has to all of humanity, even as they do him great harm. And then he says, it's finished and he's dead, and, and it almost feels like, you know, this is just grotesque. They come up and, and they ram a spear into his side. You know, just, it's like insult to injury, right? It's like, you know, the guy's dead. You know, he's just been brutally beaten. He, why? And they, and they ram this spear into his side, and it says it punctures his heart, and out of his heart flows blood and water. And there's many, there's many symbolisms here, but one of them that I love is that, um, you know, 
Peter's telling us here that the, the ark is Christ. And, and, and if the ark only had one, one door to it that was on its side, it means that as Christ says, it is finished, there's now a, a pierced hole into his side where there's, there's one door into the side of Christ. And out of it comes what? Water and blood. Water being the cleansing of the human soul and the cleansing of the human conscience. Blood being the, the redemption of our sins to forgive us forever and ever and ever. And it's what pours out of Christ's side. And then you picture him hanging there and he's in this vulnerable open position saying, whosoever will come into the ark. Come. There's suffering coming, he's saying. And, there's, and, and then here's the thing. We all know this, even if we're trying to keep our minds away from it. It's like hardships here. Come to me, he's saying. And he's saying there's hardship in the life now. And he says, and then there's even worse judgment to come. So come through the only door. Jesus said this, which is very exclusive. And much of the world hates that he said it. But that's why you can trust the Bible because it says things you don't like. He said, there's only one way to the father. There's no other way. There's only one door. Come to me. Any who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. There's one door. Come to me. And so that's where I wanted to end this morning was to tell you, if you're hurting this morning, or if you are weary this morning, if you're confused, or maybe most importantly, if you are battling resentment and bitterness in your heart, get in the ark. Get in the ark. Because I, I truly believe that Christian courage is at, a, is, a, is at a premium right now. We need more courageous Christians. And I don't mean bombastic Christians. I mean courageous Christians that are willing to get into the ark and hold on to Christ. And maybe more importantly, to know that when we get in the ark, Christ has us in his hands. And therefore, we don't have to be afraid. And so when your pursuit of Christian virtue is being threatened by the waters of hardship, I want to say to you, there's no greater choice, no wiser choice than to make sure you get in the boat. Get in the ark. Christ's arms are open wide to us this morning. Let me pray for us. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray. Oh, Father, I, I want to say a simple prayer for the sake of time, but also for the sake of brevity in speech. Uniquely now, would you make this call by the power of your spirit to all who need to hear it, that your arms are still open wide to us, to the hurting heart, the one who suffers, the one who struggles, that your arms are out to the brother or sister who needed to hear that their virtue and their pursuit of Christ likeness matters. Would you still remind them, come into the boat? It's only in you, Jesus, that we have this kind of hope. And so motivate us, empower us, encourage us, strengthen us. Lord Jesus, we're